What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Modern Day Sniper Podcast. I am Kalen Wojcik, and I am your host today. And in this episode, we've got a special guest, Mr. Aaron Hip of Kinetic Security Solutions and the Adaptive Tuning Systems Barrel Tuner. And as you guys can probably figure, this episode is going to be solely focused on discussing barrel tuners, what they are, how they work, and talking about why they actually work. So for all of you guys that are potential naysayers on the barrel tuning system, we're going to talk about what actually is happening with a barrel tuner and how they work and discussing sometimes barrel tuners might not give you the same effect that you think that you're supposed to get based upon your precision shooting system. So it was a fantastic episode. It was a great conversation with Aaron and I encourage you guys to have a listen and you guys know the drill. Until next time, keep your faces on the gun and enjoy the episode. All right, man. So Aaron Hip, what's going on, buddy? Not much, just uh, actually on uh, vacation, PTO, we kind of have a uh, a firm shutdown between Christmas and New Year for my day job. So for those that don't know, my tuners are not my full-time gig. Uh, it's just kind of a little side gig that's, you know, I, I don't want to say I stumbled upon, but in the process of learning more about them, uh, wanted to build a better mousetrap for, for some of the things that I want. Yeah. So before we jump in, Aaron, um, let everybody know uh, who you are, what your background is, and um, where you're at in the shooting sports, um, and just to kind of give everybody a primer of what it is that we're going to talk about for this episode. Yeah, sure. So my name is Aaron Hip. Uh, I've been shooting competitively in PRS since uh, probably about 12 years now. Uh, I'm probably right on the borderline of what you know a lot of us kind of refer to as one of the originals the ogs have been in it just a long time uh, so i mean it was a completely different game back then you know it's it's been really interesting and exciting to see the transition and the, the progression of the sport and the equipment that we use and you know all of the new companies that that have spun up out of you know the interest in the shooting sports um it's you know it's kind of funny i you know back in the day we going to i was going to the range and you know, I met John Addis at the range. Like he was, you know, working a normal day job at the time. And now he's, you know, runs Area 419. Mark Gordon, I met him at the range. Like he was still a helicopter mechanic. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Dave Preston at Gray Ops, you know, he was still a farmer. Right. Mm -hmm. But we all had this love for shooting and, you know, we all had this desire to, to tinker and learn. And, you know, is there a way to make things better or, you know, provide additional options for shooters? And so that's, that was my interest in shooting. Uh, my background is uh, by day, well, my background from an education perspective is uh, I'm an engineer by degree. I actually started out and kind of stumbled through a, a number of different focus areas in engineering from mechanical to civil to uh, ultimately I settled on computer engineering. And so my day job is uh, I'm an IT security consultant. I help develop and redesign and improve large-scale security operation centers and threat and vulnerability management programs for some of the, the the top organizations in the country, we'll say. I typically focus on Fortune 200 through Fortune 400 companies. Uh, but that's my day job. Uh, I work for another, I, I work for a company that does that. Uh, shooting is just one of my hobbies. It's, I like the challenge of it. I've you know, I'm the type of person that, you know, my parents probably hated me as a kid because I'm the one that always asked why, why, why on everything. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to learn how things work and I'm, I'm still like that. Right. So, you know, I, I struggle to take, I struggle to blindly take somebody's, uh, 
answer for why something works or, you know, how something works. I, you know, I've got to get hands on and do it myself. And, you know, I was, like I said, I was the kid that got in trouble a lot because, you know, my, my dad would walk downstairs in the basement and there I am with, you know, his CB tore apart, right? Like in, you know, a hundred thousand <laughs> pieces. And, uh, but you know, my, my dad and family, they're, they're all really well mechanically inclined. Uh, so, I mean, it was just kind of a natural thing. I wanted to play with it. That's what drives everything, right? It's like we have this this innate desire to to explore things and not stick with the status quo. And, you know, that's where our little personalities are built when we're little kids, you know, at, at three to five years old. That's when everything starts to like psychologically take place and we start developing the person that we're going to be for the rest of our lives pretty much in that really, really narrow span of time. Yeah, I... I love it. And like I said, I've always just been really, I've got that strong engineering mindset. Like I, I want to know why I want to validate it. I want to figure it out. I want to see if I can improve it, make it better. You know, how can you change it? Which, you know, my day job. Uh, so I, I ran our threat and deliberately management teams and, and led all of our domestic penetration testing, which for those that don't know what that is, it's ethical hacking, right? So an organization hires us to come in and look at their security, um, posture of their organization and then, you know, tell them, Hey, could we get in, you know, what to fix, but it really created this analytical mindset of, you have to not only look at what you're doing, what you're playing with, but like this will say the system as a whole, um, because any change you make in one area could affect multiple downstream areas or upstream areas. So you have to be very analytical. And so, you know, for me, like when I'm looking at and testing things, that was the reason I, I created the tuner. Really what it was, was I wanted to learn about tuners. I had a lathe in the garage, um, but all the existing tuners required you to put additional muzzle threads, you know, additional threads on your barrel behind the muzzle threads. And I looked at it and I said, logically, this doesn't make sense. You know, I, I want to learn about them, but for me to be comfortable saying that they, they work, I need to put them on multiple rifles, multiple barrel contours, multiple barrel links, and the existing designs just didn't easily facilitate that. And so I walked out in the garage and I stood there looking at my lathe and a, a, a barrel and a you know, a bar, piece of bar stock I had. And like, how can I make a universal one with what we have? Like, what does, you know, 90% of rifles have these days? And it's, well, we've all got muzzle threads. I'm like, okay, we've all got muzzle threads. Well, what else do I need? Well, I want to be able to test it with a muzzle brake. Okay, we can do that. I also want to be able to put a suppressor on there. Okay. So it's all these, you know, criteria, right, that I'm coming up with. And, and that's how the first tuner was made. And the first tuner was ugly. It was big. It was horrendous. Um, but that's where it started. And I, you know, changed the shape. I changed the weight. I changed the, um, the mounts. And ultimately we ended up where we did with the, the gen one tuner. Uh, and then after with that one for a while, I looked, I'm kind of like, well, what else? Like, how can I make that better? And it's like, well, let's add a taper to it. So it doesn't get caught on barricades coming back through and it just looks cosmetically better. Uh, no functional difference between the gen ones and the gen twos. I still have a Gen 1 on that rifle back there. It's my coyote rig, my night rig. Um, Gen 2s, just, you know, with the taper and for barricade and PRS work and things like that. It was the logical next step. It made sense. Like, it was an improvement. Outside of just wanting to explore, what did you see as the as the benefit of a tuner? And, and what caused you to look and dig a little bit deeper and say, you know what, I want to do it myself. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. So, I mean, first off, when I started, I knew nothing about tuners, 
right? I looked at them. I'm like, okay, the engineering, con- you know, the conceptual engineering behind them makes 100% sense to me. It's statics and dynamics 101. It's moments, right? I mean, you, you've got something this long. You put a weight here, the downward force. If you've got something this long, so on and so forth. Uh, but I just want to look and see, like, what do they do, right? And I think at first... The answer I had was, well, can I make a group better, right? I think that's what everybody thinks a tuner does. Well, I can make my group better with it. There's actually a lot more to it than that. And, I, and like I said, I will I'll tell you right now, like, will tuners work on every platform? They will not work equally on every platform, right? They all have that's different masses. That's a great masses. point to bring up. Yeah, they all have different masses, but look at it. Like I said, I go back to it's a system as a whole. If you've got an 18-inch MTU contour barrel versus a 24 inch, say an 18 inch MTU contour 22 barrel versus a 24 inch MTU six creed barrel. Like the harmonics of those systems are completely different, right? It's the same concept of, you know, I give you a 12 inch two by four and tell you to bend it, you're going to look at me and laugh. But if I give you a 12 foot two by four, we all know you can sit, you know, sit there and shake that thing around. Like that's the whole thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people will make statements of, Tuners work, tuners don't work. And the answer is tuners will have an effect on the platform that you put them on, whether that effect is measurable to your ability to shoot and the ammo that you're shooting will vary, Mm -hmm. right? So like I said, 18 inch MTU 22 contour, that's a super stiff, super high frequency barrel, right? In order to Mm -hmm. tune that, you're probably said you're going to need a lot of weight or a lot of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I started out like, can I make groups better? <clears throat> and it did. And I'm like, oh, well, this is cool. <clears throat> and then over time, I started to realize there was a lot of other benefits to them. And one for me, I have a day job that I work at least 60 hours a week at, right? It's probably closer to 65. So like I said, tuners are a side gig. Um, my day job keeps me extremely busy. So when I'm getting ready for PRS matches, I, I know some people enjoy it. They think it's relaxing. I hate sitting at the reloading bench. I hate it. It's <laughs> sitting there, dumping powder charges, and pulling a handle. It is mind-numbingly boring for me. With that being said, you know, you look at tuners. Before you even get to the reloading bench, it's load development. And, you know, we've all been around load development. You'll hear a hundred different approaches on how to do load development. Ladder test, you know, jump test all the above, you know, no mm-hmm. test, everything. Uh, and back when I was shooting for Mark at Short Action Customs, I actually was, you know, helped him out and was part of his testing that he was doing on the jump testing. And, and if you haven't read that, that article's out on Precision Rifle Blog. There's a lot of different people that were involved in that. It's a really good article. I would you mm-hmm. know, highly recommend everybody go and do it. It's an excellent article. Yeah, and, and as a result of that, I started thinking, well, you know, and I learned some things from that. And, you know, everybody back then was, Never jump anything more than thirty thousandths. Never like it. It's got to be five to twenty-five, five to thirty. Mm-hmm. You go above that, and it's you know it's just bad juju, as as Jason Green would like to say. Um, <laughs> you know, but I learned a lot out of it. And so then it was, well, what else can I do with a tuner that's beneficial for a shooter? And for me, so I started going out and looking, and I said, okay, I'm just going to start picking a charge, picking a charge weight that I know is safe. I'm, preface that with that you know is safe and just seat the bullet that I know is somewhere between 30 and a hundred thousands. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to load up a bunch of ammo that is consistent, has a same consistent powder charge and the same seating depth. And I'm going to go out and put it in my rifle 
and see if I can use, see how it shoots, number one, and see if I can use the tuner to change how it shoots, mm -hmm. right? Tuners can make things better. Tuners can make things worse, right? You may have great ammo, shoots great, and you can put a tuner in a position that could make it worse. Absolutely. The, the concept is, can you change it? And so went out and started realizing like, okay, you know, it's time I was running a 647, which is a little bit more finicky than some of the cartridges we're all running now. Uh, and it was like, okay, this ammo is shooting three quarter to an inch, which is bad from, you know, what our expectations For are. For what we want. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I messed with the tuner. Okay. I got it to go basically back to what, you know, my best hand loads would be. I'm like, wait a minute. I did no load development on this. I didn't fire a single round. Picked a powder charge, picked a seating depth, loaded up 20 rounds and went out and found a node. I'm like, okay, well, is it consistent? Did the same thing the next day. Yep, same thing the next day. Yep, okay, let's pick a different powder charge and different seating depth, okay? So I'm like, well, wait a minute, I can significantly reduce my loading time because you know, in a competitive setting, a lot of us for PRS, we know where certain calibers typically shoot well on our rifles, right? What speeds, and a lot of us will adjust our powder charge based off of what the weather's gonna be like that weekend because we don't wanna get stuck in a, in a downpour and have a high pressure load and have people pop primers. We see it all the time at matches. Mm -hmm. So we, we yep. back it down a little bit. So, you know, and then there's a lot of us that, that will take a backup gun. And now when you get into taking a backup gun, you're talking about an entirely another set of ammo. Another 400 rounds to load, right? Just right. to make sure that that thing is still ready to go and dialed. Yep. Second gun, second batch of ammo, another six hours at the reloading bench. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's no fun in that. Yep. So I started taking my rifles and load up my ammo. I'm like, okay, this, I, I pick a powder charge that gets me the speed that I want, which like I run a BRA now and I run it at 2860 approximately mm -hmm. with 105 hybrids. Um, and then my seating depth after that jump testing I did with Mark, like, I just make sure it's somewhere between 50 and 75 thousandths. Don't really care. Mm -hmm. It's consistent. Yep. Um, and then I'm like, okay, well, it's, I know that I can just pick random powder charges and, and seating depths and get them to shoot with the tuner. Well, now I know I can take that same ammo that was for gun number one and make it work in gun number two. And if I have to switch to a backup gun, all I have to do is, like, it may shoot a different speed. All I've got to do is adjust the speed in my Kestrel, and I'm good to go. And then I went even further than that. I said, well, wait a minute. Now i got another match coming up. I've got a leftover 75 or 100 rounds from the last match. I don't want to go load up another 250 to 300 rounds for this match. And, and this was kind of funny. I did this this year, and, and people thought I was crazy. So I showed up to Wisconsin, the Barrel Maker Classic, which was an AG Cup match. And, and for those of us that, for those of you that don't know, like there's a lot of perception that guys are going to run whatever sponsor product they have. And let me just clarify one thing. People have relationships, but you will not find a top level PRS competitor or any competitor for that matter that runs a product that they do not feel comfortable in, that they do not feel will give them the ability to win. Right, we sink way more money into this sport than what they ever ever could imagine to be made off of the sport. Oh, that's beyond a doubt, <laughs> beyond a doubt. Yeah. So I showed up the Wisconsin Barrel Maker Classic. Uh, I had a hundred rounds from a prior match. I had leftover ammo um, 
from another match, and then I needed to load some up. And I was out of powder. I'm like, okay. Well, I'm going to go take another lot of... Uh, so I had two different powder charges of 48.95, but they were shooting the same speed um, because they were different jugs of ammo, different lots of, different lots of powder. And then mm -hmm. I ran out of 48.95 altogether. So I had to switch to Varget. And then I, had, I went out and I took a couple rounds, put Varget in it, and got the powder charge that matched the speed of the prior ammo. Okay. Match the speed, same seating depth. So now I have two sets of ammo or two lots of ammo with 4895, different powder charges running the same speed. Then I ran out of 4895, switched over to Varget, completely different powder charge, but it's running the same speed. Went out with the tuner, tuned it. Hey, guess what? Those shoot. Hey, there's more time savings at the reloading bench. And I showed up at Wisconsin and people thought I was crazy. They're like, there's no way. And I took, I think, fourth in AG Cup up there. Like, it it works. Like, I wouldn't do it if I didn't trust it. Like, it's not worth my time to drive 11 hours, pay the money, the hotel fees, and drive 11 hours back. Yeah, we Philip and I were having that conversation last night about just uh, setting intentions. Um, we were talking about the, we're going to, modify our subscription service for 2023 and we were just looking at it and saying okay well yeah you're investing so much time and we talk about for like even students coming to class um you get students coming to class and for a four-day class especially if they're traveling like you said 12 hours in the truck you know that's also your time and your time is incredibly valuable it's far more valuable than any than any monetary value you can put on it and you're not going to go just to, you know, you're like, well, what am I even doing here? Why am I here? I'm just, I might as well just pack up and go home. So when you are at that, uh, at the upper level of competition, um, and you are a sponsored shooter and there is some stress of performance associated with your presence at that event, you need to make sure that things are dialed and you need to make sure that, um, that there's no question in your mind that your equipment is going to function flawlessly because, that that having any doubt in that you and I both know is going to manifest instantaneously into your performance immediately. Which actually that that brings up another good point. You're talking about some of the value of tuners. I've traveled for a lot of matches. I've you know all of us that have traveled for matches, we've left home with a rifle that shoots amazing. Right, you've got your meticulous hand load. The rifle shoots amazing. You come from the south up north in the you know early summer or, or you know early spring where you know you could have all four seasons in the same day up here in Ohio, or you know mm -hmm. you head out west where the the environmentals are completely different, and you get out there and you lay down and you start shooting and now your rifle's shooting three quarters of an inch to an inch and you're like, didn't do that the other day. <laughs> didn't do that the other day. What's going on? You talk about that right. mental game, right? Yeah. So the first thing it is like. Okay, and then people start burning rounds. Is it me? Is it the rifle? Did the scope slip? Is something loose? Is it the ammo? Am I in, and, and we hear this all the time. It's just the position you're laying in at the new, this other range. It's weird. You're shooting downhill. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a, a good example. We're headed out to War Rifles last year, the year before, and I get a phone call from, from Hunter Sykes, and he's a, he's a great competitor, top-level shooter. He's like, hey, are you bringing any tuners to the match? I'm like, yeah. Uh, he's like, look, man, I left home. My rifle was shooting basically one hole. He's like, it's an inch up here. And we get up there. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. We'll bring it. And we put one on at the match, dialed it in, back to where it was when he left. 
at the end of day one, he was in second place. But you talk about that mental game. And so like traveling for matches, what happens if you don't run a tuner, what happens when you get to a match and your rifle, your ammo is not performing the same way as it was when you left? One, your mental game shot. Like it, yep. right up front, you're going to start mm -hmm. questioning everything you do, every miss you make. It's going to be a question. You're not going to be on the top of your game. Yep. Now, flip side of that is what if you can lay down at the 100 yard range and you can dial your ammo back in? Mm -hmm. huh. Within within 20 15 rounds. shots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, Something like that. Confidence level, it's there. You're back. And so that's another, you know, that's another. Uh, feature of tuners like hey you travel for matches and you know you apply that to the military it's even more like you go from united states to eight thousand foot in the mountains of afghanistan things are going to change yeah well and also lots of different lots of ammunition and different rifles and man i could have 30 guns in i could have 30 guns in the school inventory and none of them will shoot the same right because some of them have 5,000 rounds through the barrel. Some of them have 200 rounds through the barrel. Some of them have 10,000 rounds through the barrel. Some of them we have no idea. And different lots of ammunition change and the ability to tune that. I mean, obviously we can't control the combustion, but what we can control is the, uh, the harmonics and the ability to get the rifle tuned for that specific set of parameters that we're dealing with at that time. And I think that that would be very advantageous uh, in the military, granted, people would have to understand how they work and have some basic, you know, you know, you start doing things in the military, especially in the basic level, just the introduction of suppressors into the military, into the Marine Corps, that was a big deal. Um, and with like, especially the, the surefire suppressors, there's a lot of problems in the Marine Corps with, with the addition of the surefire suppressors on those M40s. They ended up having a lot of issues with baffle strikes very baffling pun intended because nobody could figure out what the hell was happening. And, um, there are still situations where, uh, if you go to a specific shooting course, those, they want you to take the suppressor off the rifle because they're having baffle strikes in those environments. Um, that's a, another topic for a different time, but the, the ability to tune your rifle, uh, provided you have the know-how to do it um because if you let if you let some some younger guys uh say hey guys you're gonna zero your guns man before long before in 10 minutes you have a freaking pile of brass there and we still don't have guns that are zeroed and it's just a huge time suck because if you give people that opportunity they get inside their heads and they're like oh i need to shoot another three-round group i need to shoot and shoot another three-round group and we can slowly uh, but very quickly at the same time, create more problems than what we started off with. So, all right. So we understand that what we're doing with the tuner is we're essentially, we're, we're moving weight forward and aft along the, along the longitudinal axis of the barrel to, um, essentially tune the harmonic frequency of the, the vibrations that are happening through the process of recoil. And we're trying to figure out how we can, if you like, maybe put it into layman's terms for people. So that way we can bring it all together before we want to move into like, how did you actually test this? So how do they work and what's the actual physical properties of what's happening with a tuner? So the easiest way I can describe this, I'm a very visual person and I think visual references help people the most understand it. And so the way I've described it that seems to come across the most to people is we all know what a whip is, right? You crack a whip, right? You know that sine wave that it makes as you crack the whip. Now imagine that's your barrel, right? Now, granted, your barrel's not doing it to the point that you can see it. 
you know, people have posted, oh, we put high-speed cameras on barrels and we can't see it doing that. No kidding. We're talking micro movements here. You need high-speed sensors, oscilloscopes. You're not going to see it. You can't see it. It's like looking at your hand and saying, well, can you see the microscopic skin mites on your hand? Or, yeah, can I see the blood flow through my capillaries? Right. It, you it's, know, it's, like, it's foolish. It's a, it's a bad test, right? But visualizing it, if you take a whip and you crack it and you have a sine wave, your barrel does that. Um, very, 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 very micro movements. Now, imagine if you tied a softball to the end of that, right? And you crack the whip again. That wave is going to change. Now, imagine if you tied a, a basketball to the end of it. Same thing. What if you moved those, that softball and that basketball two feet back, right? So it's not at the end anymore. How does it change the sign with? That's effectively harmonics in a barrel system. Now, granted, barrels don't go straight up and down. They kind of do this. But that's the, really like the, the layman way of describing harmonics in a rifle system, in a barrel, in a barrel, specifically in a barrel. Now, it's an interesting conversation that I had with, with a, a mutual friend of ours, Ted Courageous. Um, he came on board and did, uh, did an interview for us a couple of years ago. And we talked about this subject about how ideally in, in his mind, how a rifle barrel should be made. And he was, you know, so extreme as to say it should, it actually should be long and slender, long and slender, but, but have a big weight at the end of it. And it would look very, very strange to most people. Um, and it would be like, ah, that's, that's a little too, like visual aesthetics are important to people. Um, I learned about that when I was working at Magpul doing product development and, you know, visual perception, perception of quality from customers is a big, big deal. Um, so the way that Ted came about it is like, it's not, it, this is, this is not debatable. <laughs> this is not a debatable topic. This is science. This is physics and you can't argue it. So for those out there that, that say that the science proves otherwise, that's where I kind of want to take this conversation and go into and say, okay, uh, you might not actually be right because this is physics and you can't escape the laws of physics. It's what keeps us on this giant spinning ball of rock hurling through space at 17,000 miles an hour. That, that's a good point. And, and for those who don't know, we're talking about Ted Courageous. He's the owner of American Rifle Company. Um, I've known Ted for many years. Ted is, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable saying this. He's probably the most brilliant mechanical, structural, like complex system engineer that I know. Um, so when he says like, this is not debatable from an engineering perspective, he's somebody I tend to listen to. Uh, and I challenge him, but he, he can always tell me the why, right? I'll say why, mm -hmm. like, come on, Ted, explain it. And he can't. Yeah. And he's really good at it. He'll, he'll, and he's very, very good at explaining it in, in a way that people can understand. That's why I really enjoy having conversations with him. And, and that, that's an interesting topic, right? So we go back into people that say they work, people that say they don't work. Um, you know, we talked about a short 18 inch, you know, MTU contour versus a 24 inch, say heavy Palmer or something. It, it's the two by four analogy, right? Which one can you bend, right? The one that you can bend easier is going to be easier to tune. Correct. Um, so the one that has more flex is going to be easier to tune. It's, it's not as high a frequency system, right? Think of it like a tuning fork, a little short when you flick, it's going to go thing. And the long one's going to have a lower resonance. So it, that, and that's what Ted means by like an ideal rifle system is, you know, a long slender barrel because it barrels want to do this. So let them put a weight on the end of it that you can manipulate. This is a very, very contentious topic in our, in our space right now. And I think that, I think 
it's definitely worth discussing the, the, the psychological aspect of this and is, and, and also how quick dogma starts. It, it only takes literally one second for a dogmatic thought process to take effect and, and grab a hold, especially if there are um, influencers out there that are making statements that we all know that that people will just automatically attach to it and say, as soon as that statement is made, now that's it, period, end of story, because this person said so. And that's an unfortunate aspect of, of just humans in general, right? We can't really, it's really hard to get around. However, what, what, I, what I think is very necessary to prevent that from happening is to have conflicting views, um, to have some sort of uh, a logical argument and say, hey, no, actually, this is, this is another way of looking at this. And I, I want to hear your perspective on that and how, because um, everybody now it's like the sample size thing. Okay. That's fair. That's very fair. Right. And it's, it's important, but then it goes into the practicality of it. Um, I've spoken a lot with the boys at Hornady, um, Jaden and Jaden is obviously, he works for an ammunition company. So they have the means, they have the ability, the time, the resources, and the money to do these these massive tests, I would hope so. It's Hornady, for God's sake. Like they need to be doing that. Uh, that's the service that they need to be providing for us as their customers across the world. So yeah, it's no, it's no wonder that we can drastically manipulate outcomes with larger or smaller sample sizes. Um, but is that practical for everybody to do? No, it's not. I can't go to the range and shoot, you know, 50, 30 round groups, right? That's just not practical. I'm going to, I'm just going to be wrecking barrels. And for what we do, it's just going to send our supply and demand chain up and down like crazy because we'd be shooting barrels out before we'd actually be getting anything actionable from them. So explain, talk to your, talk to me about your thought process and how we can definitively test these things. Uh, and, and where, the comfort level should reside with the shooters that are out there in the world. I think we've already beaten it to death to, to recap it and say, look, tuner's not going to work on every platform. And you guys that are listeners out there, I really hope that you can wrap your brains around that and say, just because there's a tuner out there or a product out there, and we have this, this, this psychology of either fear of missing out, uh, have to have the cool kid, the cool kid kit. Um, and then we say, well, wait a minute. Um, Somebody over there says that they don't work, and I'm just going to go ahead and latch onto that without trying it myself. That's on you um, if you're not going to try it and you're not going to at least give it some merit and 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 see is this even worth my time, energy, or effort. So we know that they're not all going to work on every single platform. They might not exactly be for you, um, but for those of us that do have platforms that they can benefit from, how can we look at that and say? All right, this is definitive, right? We can say that this works, and I can, and I can have the uh, enough testing to define what actually works for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and I'd even step back into that and say, first off, you know, there's going to be some people that will probably contradict that statement and say, well, why should I do the testing myself? Because so and so already did it and published data, and I can look at that. And, right. and here's what I'm going to say on that statistics is a very interesting thing, right? You can get statistics to say pretty much whatever you want, and it's going to be based off of 
the data quality that you have. And so data quality comes from your test case. So in what I do, we have to design test cases all day long, right? We have to evaluate them to the nth degree. And when we design a solution or a test case, we then have to design another test case to break that test case. Like, okay, here's your test case. Now look at that and figure out all the ways that you can break it to see if it actually works or not, right? You need to evaluate your own test case because we have a we have a saying that we use and that is garbage in, garbage out, right? So you could have, you could fire a thousand rounds through a tuner. If your test case is broke, it doesn't matter if you fire one or if you fire a thousand, right? It's garbage in, garbage out. So if, if like I said, if your test case is flawed, how do you rely on the data, right? The, the statistical data is, is just not there. So this is a well, tough if, topic for me because it, of some case of the stuff. Point. Yeah. Case in point, right? So I've got a, I've got a, I've got a six Creedmoor, uh, that's, I had it set back. It was, it was cut for another chamber. I stopped shooting that particular action. And so, um, I cut these two barrels back to fit, um, an American rifle company action. So I lost some barrel length out of it, but they were brand new. I didn't really care. So, so what it's a, it's a 20, it's a 23 and a half inch, uh, six Creedmoor, but it's a proof competition contour. So it's basically a truck axle at, at, at that length. Now, but 23 inches is, is a tunable barrel. It, it is a tunable barrel. It absolutely is a tunable barrel. And so I took, uh, I shot one barrel out. <clears throat> the same load is a, um, it's a 40.1 grains of H4350 uh, underneath a 110 grain A tip out of Peterson brass. It's flying right at it, like 2995, 3000 feet a second. That same load moving right into another barrel, um, a fresh barrel. It didn't shoot exactly the same. It didn't shoot exactly as tight. I got the same speed because the combustion is the combustion. It is what it is, right? The powder charge is what it is. And the same barrel length, uh, same case, but it just wasn't tuned perfectly. And so I took your tuner, I put your tuner on the barrel and put a uh, put my brake over the top of it. And within... I don't know, 10 shots, 12 shots. I was able to get the group back into three shots touching. And for me, three shots touching, people are like, oh, that's not enough. Man, I'm moving to the point in my shooting career where I I don't want to look at all of those details. I don't want to do that. I want to be able to go into that shooting event knowing, hey, I just put three shots touching. That's that's good enough for me, man. Maybe five shots. but I, I want to be able to just move away from that um, almost like obsessive compulsive aspect of it where it's like, hey, I know the thing shoots. I know it shoots, right? Now I'm going to go shoot a match with it. Um, I did a thing. I did. Uh, I went to Pig River uh, before you showed up for the night match. Oh, yeah. um, I took a, the training rifle that I have and I said, you know what? I've, I, I don't shoot. I haven't. I just pulled the profile from last year of shooting 140 grain bullets out of that thing. All I did was re-zero it, and I brought it from across across uh, from Washington State, put it in a brand new chassis, didn't do anything, just re-zeroed it. It shot exactly point of aim, point of impact. I pulled up last year's profile in the Hornady Ford off solver, entered in an approximate muzzle velocity, and I'm cleaning courses of fire out to a grand out there at Pig River on minute and a half targets. It's like, dude, what else do you want? 
we're not, I'm not here as a bench rest shooter. I'm not here as an F-class shooter. I'm seeing targets that are two minutes to a minute and a half in size, and I'm hitting all of those targets. And you didn't spend six hours at a bench? No. Nope. With your brass prep and everything else? Grab factory, factory ammo, ammo and roll. That's it, man. And so then on top of that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to pull the suppressor off and put a muzzle brake on it. And I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to recheck velocity. I'm not going to check my point of impact shift. And I just want to see what happens. Guess what? Clean the course of fire, you know, and it's like, put the suppressor back on, take it off, put it on, take it off. And it's the same thing. And I'm trying to get my brain, um, to be less focused on the obsessive compulsive aspects of the little tiny nuances. So that way I can free up more capacity to focus on performing, um, and, and leave all that stuff behind. And a tuner allows you to do that because like you said, not everything is always going to stay the same. Now, what would be, what would be a barrel that you would say is like for your weight, the weight and size of your tuner, what would you say that you're probably not going to see a whole lot of, um, visible actionable effect? What would be that threshold? So I would say it also depends on the cartridge. Um, 22s, sure, okay. 22s are notoriously more finicky than a center fire rifle. There's just not much harmonics in it. And you put a big, heavy, stiff barrel on it. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty stiff system. It's like, it is what it is at that point. Right. Like I would tell you, and I'm comfortable saying this, if you're running an 18 inch MTU contour 22, if you put a tuner on it, you're going to want weight. Like mine would be an XL. You probably don't want the competition model. You're going to want an XL. Like you can tune it, but it's going to be more weight. Um, I'll tell you those systems will be more finicky. 22s in general are just, they're more finicky day to day. Look, the ammo, the ammo's, look, even good ammo has ESs and SDs, you know, an, an extreme spread of 20, 25, maybe. I mean, um, we said, to be completely honest, air rifles have better ESs and SDs than 22s do. Like I can take 10 shots out of my air rifle and it's got an extreme spread of two. Mm-hmm they're more consistent than 22s and and I've, I've put tuners on 22s but if you're going to ask me like look i i have tuners and i sell them and i'm telling you right now like if you're running like an 18 inch mtu or 1.25 22 cal barrel good luck right that is just a very stiff system 20 inches and above we you know 20 inches is you'll be able to tune it you may need more movement you should be able to tune it um, above that really haven't seen any systems that haven't been able to be tuned. I can tell you that of all the tuners that are out there, I've had maybe two or three people in what, two and a half, three years now that have said, Hey, I, I just can't get this to work on my rifle. Look, there, there could be more, I'll be realistic. There could be more, but three people out of how many I know that are out there and all of the different rifle platforms you know, what they are, the configurations, not to mention somebody's shooter ability and when they were shooting their groups, that's, that's a pretty good result. Um, and look, if, if somebody buys one of mine and you, you can't get it to tune, you're having a problem finding those, call me. This actually kind of goes back to the, one of the statements you said earlier, I was going to kind of chime in. You said, you know, you give all of the, the, the work guns to a guy and he's going to have a pile of brass trying to tune it. And I can't tell you how many people call me up like, Hey, how do I tune this? There's a QR code on the, the card, like scan it. It's detailed <laughs> it's like instructions. Read the, read the, for the thousands of these, yeah, for the thousands <laughs> of these tuners that are out there. And this is kind of another, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. But I read on this forum that this person said I should do X. Right. I, and that goes back into 
quality of data over quantity of data, right? You can, the people online that talk, you don't see a lot of top level competitors providing feedback because the newer shooters, the people that are just getting into it, the people that like spending time online are much more vocal, right? Mm -hmm. And, and then they tell, you know, tell us, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Kind of do like, and, and what you said earlier, you know, there's, there's influencers out there. There's people that publish data and results. I'll tell everybody, you should never follow anyone blindly. Don't follow me blindly. Don't follow yep. Kalen blindly. Don't yep. follow some of these other people blindly. I don't care what they do for a living. People make mistakes and engineers make mistakes. If engineers didn't make mistakes, you wouldn't see building collapses. You wouldn't see bridge collapses. You wouldn't see airplane crashes. So th think about that for a minute. S challenge the status quo. Look at it. Do your own analysis. Don't follow somebody blindly. Like you will never learn anything if you follow someone blindly. Listen and, and learn. What would be a good indication to, to, to say, okay, that's suspect. All right. That's, that's a suspect in, in the sense of like a test, a test procedure or in regards to the tuner aspect of things, what would you say would be kind of like, eh, that's a little suspect. I might want to look a little deeper into, um, into those statements or those results or whatever the case might be. Uh, this is a tough one. Cause there's a specific one that I'm thinking about. Uh, and, and I don't, it's okay because it's this is this is not something. Um, this is this is real. This is pragmatic. This isn't like I'm not trying to like pound my fist and say um, this is wrong. I'm simply trying to say for everybody that's out there, um, we've we're very we're well known for fighting a dogmatic thought process. We're really against that, and the reason that I say that is all of the listeners that are that are, that are here right now that are listening to this episode, we're not taking any different stance here. We're looking at it and saying, okay, if we allow dogma, especially in the sniper community, the military sniper community, once that takes a hold, it is literally generations before you can get that dogmatic process to, to shift, right? It's like, it's like taking a fully loaded container vessel that's traveling across the ocean. That's a giant ship to turn. And the only way that you're going to get that ship to turn, unless you got a bunch of tugboats, is from the wheelhouse. And turning a boat from the wheelhouse means that you have to get rid of the dogmatic thought process. And it's really hard to do. Um, because without any kind of educated or systematic approach to uh, dismantling the dogma, nobody's going to believe you, right? And that's a tough thing to do. And so that's something that we're really, uh, all of our listeners are going to accept that and that's fine. So, and this isn't going to be like a bash session. This is real, this is pragmatic. And this is, that's why we, that's why I wanted to talk to you about this because, People are vehemently, it's like they're, it's like they're rabid dogs when you, when, when this stuff comes up and it shouldn't be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Look, I'll just come out and say it. Um, there was some recent data published by, by Litz at AB and I go back to the test case scenario, you know, developing good test cases and statistics. And so at the highest level, like I said, challenge everything, think through it. Don't take anything, anybody's word for, you know, verbatim, like it. Just challenge it, right? And mm -hmm. think through everything as a whole. And so I'll give you a, a really good example. In the past, you know, AB's published that the average shooter, like shooters can't shoot better than, 
I don't remember what it was, say five eighths inch of a group consistently. Like that was through their testing. Interesting test result. They took a shooter, a couple shooters, and, and they shot and they came up with an average. Statistical data through volume, through, you know, an exercise. But then, you know, when they did the tuner testing, right? So we know that every platform will will respond differently. So a F-class gun, a PRS gun that's, you know, highly tuned, highly tuned ammo versus a factory gun with production ammo, right? We're going to, we know those are going to perform differently downrange, right? That would be a, a good expectation. Now, if you think back to the original test scenario, like those guys took F-class guns, they took highly tuned PRS guns and highly tuned, you know, hand-loaded ammo for both of them and put good shooters behind it and said, well, shooters can't shoot groups better than whatever, five-eighths of an inch or something consistently. But then we go and we want to do tuner testing. And we're taking those same guns and we're trying to get better results out of it. So we've taken highly tuned platforms, highly tuned ammo that is already shooting wonderful, and we're trying to determine can tuners improve it or have an effect, right? It's interesting that they said tuners could make it worse, which I would expect it, right? I mean, if you look at the scale of things, it's a bell curve, you know, bad, good, worse. You're going to expect that it changes. Now, you put those same shooters behind it that the previous tests show you can't shoot better than, say, five-eighths of an inch group, and you're trying to take those guns that already shoot or are capable of shooting quarter MOA, third MOA, and then you start shooting those same guns with shooters, well, that, that's broken test case because prior testing has shown you will never get results whether you put a boat anchor out there, a tuner out there, a suppressor, or a muzzle brake better than your prior results of, say, five-eighths of an inch group because the shooter can't consistently do it. So we shoot a 1,000 shots, but we don't need to. We, we know that the flaw in that design is, one, you've taken the most highly tuned platform and ammo that there is, so your signal to noise ratio is so much closer, right? Like it may have been better, but now we've put a shooter behind it. So we've added a, another error component to the system because as a shooter, I'm flawed. I couldn't lay behind a rifle and shoot a thousand rounds. And if you put a sensor between my shoulder and that rifle and on the grip and everything else, cheek piece, and measured the amount of pressure that I put against that rifle, I guarantee you, I couldn't come close being what we would consider consistent for a thousand yeah. rounds that's a great point man that that would actually be a really really interesting uh a really interesting test to put together um because ted, ted was out at my range uh a while ago and and he was like hey you know it's a what's a half minute at 100 yards equal to at the buttstock it's about three thousandths of an inch right so for us as a human component to be able to manage the movement of that buttstock to within three thousandths of an inch to achieve a half of a minute dispersion at distance at a hundred yards, that is a giant dose of perspective, giant dose of perspective. And then you, you magnify that across a thousand rounds, right? Multiple days. So you're, you're not doing it in one day, right? So what changes when I say, you know, earlier I said, you have to look at the entire system, the entire test scenario. How is it broken? Well, one, we put a shooter behind it, a manual shooter, you know, a, a, a person who's prone to error. They're not going to be consistent in the amount of pressure that they apply at any component of that rifle system across a thousand rounds. 
We're going to do it across multiple days. So they're going to have different clothes on. They're going to be, you know, stiff one day, not stiff the next day. It, it doesn't make sense, right? If you would have taken and done that test with a factory rifle and factory ammo, the signal to noise ratio becomes this. You can see that change much better. But statistically speaking, when your signal to noise ratio sits here, right, and we're going to do it across a large sample size, well, statistics will tell you you're, the more you shoot, the more you're going to come to zero, right? The more rounds you put through that, the more you're going to come to zero because you have all of those other error components and influences. I did a test with, um, I actually went up and borrowed Mark Gordon's railgun. For those of you that don't know, the smallest groups in the world are shot with railguns. It's a platform, you mount your barreled action into it and it slides back and forth on rails. You literally touch the trigger and I was pulling the trigger with a string, okay? And when you pull the trigger, you slide it back forward so it hits a stop and you shoot again, right? And it's you completely 100% repeatable. 100% repeatable. Like I said, if you don't know what a railgun is, look up railguns, look at the smallest groups in the world, world records, they're shot with railguns, right? We're talking like in the zero zeros at 100 and 300, okay? Um, why is that a good test? There's no shooter influence. So I did it in just in a small sample, right? We say quality of data over quantity of data. The quantity of data in the other test we just described is fairly useless because we know like there's shooter error in there and a shooter can't shoot good enough to figure out like the shooter's not good enough to consistently break that signal to noise ratio because you've already got a highly tuned platform if you loaded crappy ammo in that rifle that shot you know an inch and then tried to tune it you'd have a better result right but you've you've already taken the signal here and you've moved it all the way down to the noise and you're trying to squeeze out you know a fraction of an inch instead of, could I take this gun to from an inch down to a half inch? So I did it on a rail gun. I took a 647 barrel, which is finicky. I grabbed some old ammo from another barrel that was old and put it in it and it was shooting like an inch and a quarter. And I just ran through the tuning process with it. Inch and a quarter, inch and a quarter. And I remember this thing's blocked in, barreled action, the whole setup weighs like 60 pounds or something. You don't touch anything but the trigger and I was pulling it with a little piece of string. Did it, ran through the tuning process. I'm like, ooh, that's the worst node, market. Okay, continue, continue. Okay, that's the best node, market. And then from there, I went back and I dialed the tuner back to the worst node. And sure enough, it opened back up. Okay, well, let's dial it back to the best node. Dial it back to the best node, and it went right back to zero. What sizes, what group sizes are you using for that? <clears throat> like what ha, shot sizes, uh, shot quantities? Uh, I was doing three shots on that one. Three shots. Um, yep, because again, there's no shooter influence. You know, everyone says, well, three shots are too small, five shots, you know, three shots of the gun, five shots of the shooter and, you know, seven and everyone says group size. Look, if I, I do my part, right? Right. If I do my part and that goes back to shooter error. I mean, how everybody says, if I do my part. So how can you look at a test trying to figure out minute differences when there's a shooter behind it? Exactly. You can't. It's a broken test. It's a flawed test scenario. It's, it's actually, it's, it's embarrassing to me to see that, but whatever. Uh, so, you know, I did three shot, three shot group sizes. I'm not trying to do a thousand round sample size, but when the change goes from an inch and a quarter down to three eighths, right? That's a big deal. Right. And then goes back to an inch and a quarter and then back to three eighths. Statistical probability of that thing jumping back at inch and a quarter and back 
to three eighths when I move it, I don't need 10,000 rounds to show it. The, the mere statistical probability of me moving this back to another position and it getting the same group as before and then moving it back to another position and it shrinking back down. Like, come on guys, you know, Frank Alley says that believe the bullet. You have to believe the results, man. You got to believe the results now. So th that brings up a good point. Now, when, when we're doing this, um, I was able to take some ammunition using, using your tuner on a, it was a medium Palma barrel. It was a, it was some ammunition from a company that we were doing some, some consulting for. And, um, it was actually, they ended up sending, sending me machine gun ammo and it was like, okay, fine. So I, I put it through, uh, the barrel and it was a, it was a CNC cut barrel. Um, and the ammunition shot terrible. It shot like maybe like two and a quarter minutes. Um, and I did that over like three, five shot groups, boom, boom, boom. All right. So I was like, man, this is terrible. So I threw the tuner on there and I couldn't control the, the speed, right? The speed was what it was, but I was able to take that two and a quarter minute gun and drive it all the way down to a three quarter minute consistently. And just like you, I was able to go, okay, that's where it is. Now I'm going to go take the tuner and I'm going to continue to go through, right? It's like focusing an optic, right? We find the focal point and then you continue to dial the diopter and it's going to take us out of that focal range. And I wanted to do the same thing with the tuner and I was able to do it as soon as I pass that node, whether that be, you know, nodes, that's another great topic. And I want to hear what your point, what your point is on that. But I was able to take it out and go right back to two and a quarter minutes and it's a wave pattern, right? And I was able to drive it right back down into that three quarter and then do it in reverse all the way back up. And so, yes, you can dial it and, and what you're doing by, by utilizing the tuner is you're moving that weight, um, fore and aft and you're essentially tuning your two in reality, what you're doing is, is you're timing the bullet exit to a specific point in the barrel travel. Is that correct? Is that a correct thing to say? Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about barrels, I mean, so if, if your barrel's whipping, right, and we're talking about minute movements, if you think about it, you know, from a sine wave perspective, as your barrel comes, as your barrel is perfectly parallel, right, in the whip, it's actually at its fastest movement. It's fastest movement. Right. It's fastest movement because it's moving from the downward stroke to the upward stroke. Think about... It, it, think about it, actually turn your barrel like this. Think about it like a pendulum, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as you come near the end, it's slowing down and ultimately stopping. And as you come down to the, the fastest point right there, and it's slowing down and stopping, right? At each end of the, the sine wave, right? So think about it as a pendulum. Um, that's where you're going to get the most consistency because even though it might be moving, the, the speed at which it's moving is much slower because it's actually slowing and it's coming to a stop at the top of the cycle or at the bottom of the cycle or, you know, they, they kind of look like... And a, it's all happening in three dimensions. Right. It's all three happening dimensions. in three dimensions. And, and you talk about that. And so some people know about this page. It comes up every so often. Um, those of us that have been around have seen it. It's, there's a guy by the name of Varmint Al. Varmint Al. I'm writing that shit down. And so Varmint Al... When you go to the webpage, Varmint Al. Yeah, Varmint Al. <laughs> it sounds like some bar story we're about to yeah, read. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, but this guy was a complex systems weapons engineer at Los Alamos Labs. Okay. Um, back in the day. So 
he was doing all of the FEA analysis and fluid dynamic motion of complex weapon systems, right? The structural engineering behind them. Phase plasma rifles and shit? Is that what we're well, talking about? Well, I mean, he, I, mean, I think the last time his page was updated was probably in 1990, okay? <laughs> That's what um, that was. Effectively, he was doing this stuff for the government and the military. I mean, for all of us that know who Los Alamos Labs is, like, yeah, you know, top secret, super, super like that's premier research facility. Like the stuff he was doing back then, like he was doing all of this back then before AB was out of high school. Um, but on his webpage, he was an active shooter. Like he, he was an avid shooter. He was an avid, you know, varmint hunter, right? Varmint owl. And if you go to his webpage, He's done a ton of analysis using very, very high-end software that the cost of that software today is prohibitive for big companies, right? Los Alamos Labs, top stuff in the world. Uh, and he posts this, and he actually did barrel harmonics. So out there on his page, he's got the FAA analysis where he's modeled entire you know, rifle platforms. Now, understand, you know, this stuff was done back in 1990 and before. So the graphics are not great and the webpage is actually pretty funny. It's like, you know, my kid's first webpage when they're eight. But, you know, that's what it was back then. But he's hard to argue this guy, right? And the software and the, the, the tools and the technologies that he had access to. He's modeled this and he's, he's modeled the modes and the nodes and the frequencies of all of these various platforms and, and how a barrel actually moves, right? It's modeled. It's on his webpage. You can see it. Uh, highly recommend you go out and read it. Those that say barrel tuners don't work and don't change harmonics, look, I say don't listen to anybody blindly, but you're wrong, right? They work. Like the magnitude of their effect will change based off of the platform, but they do work. Go out, look at this Varmint Owl webpage. Like I said, that data is better than any data I've seen on, on barrel harmonics because it is scientific, it's tested, it's mathematical, it's not the error of some of the, the tests that we see today. It's, it's a pretty interesting, and, and he's done a lot of different things out there. I mean, not just barrel harmonics, but a number of different things related to the shooting world. It's, if you're a nerd or an engineer, you, you'll probably really like it. There's another uh, white paper that's floating around out there, Aaron. You, you, I'm sure that you've seen it. Um, <clears throat> it's about. Um, I learned about it through Dan Newberry's website, and uh, it's. Uh, I think it's it's called Shockwave Theory, and this this guy is also, he's he has an engineering background, and he wanted to um, further analyze barrel harmonic movement, and then he also incorporated. Um, basically material expansion yeah the 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 expansion of the bore in its in its diameter as the bullet passes down with that big wad of gas following it and he was trying to correlate um to see if if they could model that shock wave traveling down the barrel and time optimal bullet exit to uh like the dimension of the barrel or the the bore changing as uh as the pressure influenced it. Can you speak to any of that? Or there, that there's actually that some of that on the Varmint Owls webpage as well. Oh, so, okay, cool. Yeah. So like FEA analysis is like finite element analysis. Like it does, it's doing all of that. I mean, if you think about, you know, a barrel, right. And how you would model it, like you're, you're creating a mesh, you know, wire diagram of the barrel and you're simulating the material, you know, the material properties of the barrel of, you know, the density and expansion, elasticity and temperature and all of that. Yeah. 
right? And then you're using, you know, some high-end software to model that. And so you, you put pressure behind it with a simulated bullet, which also has a density, you know, mass and a movement speed at which it's going through the barrel. It's, you know, simulating and calculating the friction of the lands and the grooves and the material, like all of that, that that's exactly what FEA analysis does, right? It simulates all of that. Um, and, and yeah, even on the macro movements you can see on the Varmin Owls webpage, there's somewhere that it shows like the expansion of, of the bullet as, you know, or the barrel as it's moving down through there. Um, I don't know if I've seen the one on shockwave theory, but I'll send it to you. Yeah. Conceptually. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, engineering dynamics. I mean, it's, it's there, right? That's, it's, it's a white paper. And so I'm not, um, I, I have no formal education outside of high school in terms of mathematics and physics. Um, my brother is a, he, my brother's a PhD physicist. Um, so I, 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 learn a little bit about that stuff, but that particular white paper on shockwave theory, I was able to get about halfway through it before the math started to get a little over my head, not a little completely over my head. So it was kind of like, ah, I, I, I would love to have somebody sit down with me and, and if possible, break it down into terms that I could understand, but I can see the validity of it. And, and I can also see that would be where we could, cause I've always tried to correlate um, I want so badly, I want it to make sense for velocity testing with load development to, to work for me, but I've never gotten it to work for me in turn. I've never been able to find it consistent, um, in terms of, you know, loading your ladder and then shooting it over a chronograph, looking for the flat spots and velocity. And the only way that my brain can conceptualize that working or being real would have to do with the elasticity of the pressure of the barrel, and saying, okay, well, from 40.1 to 40.4 to 40.7, that flat spot, right, in the in the velocity is due to the fact that the elasticity of the barrel is consistent for those three or those, you know, six tenths of chart of grain weight uh, in the in the in the chamber pressure. Is that something that 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 makes sense to you, or is that how you could potentially? make that um correlate the flat spot and velocity to finding an accurate node i don't know on that what i can tell you is when i was doing the jump testing with mark one of the things that i came to realize and, and i'll i'll send you the the charts is so if you go out and you do a jump test right load up say two or three rounds from ten thousands to twenty thousands or i'm sorry ten thousands to seventy five thousands what I found was interesting is I went out, loaded up rounds, and I, I basically the same tuning target that's on my webpage, which is just a series of dots in a 0.1 in a 0.1 mil grid. Um, if I shot at one and you know and just went horizontally across the paper so that my what I was shooting at was level, and I started say five thousandths and shot that group, and then I went to the ten thousandths jump and shot that group, and then 15, 20, and I, so on and so forth. What was interesting was as the bullet jump changed, I started to see a similar sine wave pattern. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. And so aiming points consistent, but point of impact changed. And I saw that sine wave on the paper, right? Cause I'm shooting the dots across it. And as the jump changed, the point of impact changed. And, and I started to see a very similar sine wave. The interesting part for me was, and this goes back to the, you know, that, that testing is when I hit 40 to 50 thousandths, about that 50 thousandths range, it really flattened out. And it flattened out a bunch across multiple cartridges. Uh, the other thing that I saw is as I was recording velocities doing that is that 
the velocity consistency, the, the velocities were much more consistent as I got to say 50 to 75 thousandths. And so back to your point, I started to think of why would velocities be more consistent out there? And the only thing I can think, the only thing I could think of is that, you know, maybe that additional jump allowed a little bit more pressure equalization in the chamber. I, I don't know, I don't have a way to test it, but I can tell you, I've been running 55 to 75 thousandths jump for two years now, two and a half years, you know, back from when I started doing it. And I've sent those those graphs to some other people and they've looked at it and they're like, whoa, that's crazy. I'm going to go test that. I'll send it to you, play with it, see what yeah, your results are. Um, but it was, it was interesting for me for two reasons. One, if the sine wave flattens out, for me, that means if I'm out here and my barrel starts to wear during a match, which would be the same as a different jump, you know, different seating depth. Yep. Yep. Um, or I get carbon buildup, which effectively starts to shrink your, your jump. That if I'm out here, I'm going to be less affected, right? Because it looks like I've got a 25 thousandths range where it's, it's still in the noise. It's yeah, it's still right there. And then the velocities were more consistent. So the velocity difference between a, a 5 thousandths jump versus a 15 or a 20 thousandths jump. I'm like, okay, that's 15 feet a second difference. But between, you know, 55 and 75, it's five feet a second difference. Like yeah. something's going on. Yeah, that's a that's a good point because I know the, the I know the conversation's starting to drift into some low development stuff, but I don't I don't think we can help that because tuners and low development are basically one and the same thing. You're you're literally doing the same thing. That's spot on. You're, you're yep. If you're gonna say that tuners don't work, then that means that the scrupulous amount of time that you spent at the at the shooting bench to test seating depth in theory shouldn't work either. It shouldn't matter. Right. But it actually does. Um, and the bigger, the seating depth adjustment that you make, now you're altering case capacity, which is then going to alter your pressure curve, which is then going to alter your point of impact, which is most likely why you saw that sine wave pattern on the target. And I've tried to, uh, that's one of the reasons I like using the, the optimal charge weight test, because if I can find that, if I can find that a, a good charge that is releasing the bullet when the barrel's at its um, at its point of low movement, and I'm only I'm only manipulating my seating depth three or four thousandths. I have much less propensity to alter the pressure curve than I do if making big seating depth adjustments of like ten to fifteen thousandths increments. If you start making them in that big increment, yeah, you're going to start to alter your your pressure curve, which is then going to alter your POI, and now your test is going helter skelter because now I'm starting to manipulate more variables that are uh, directly contributing to the results of the experiment. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. I've said the same thing. Like I'm doing low development, I'm just doing it with a dial on the end of my barrel, right? And, and I'm doing it in twenty twenty five rounds and. 15 minutes worth of time versus seating depth and powder charges and all the above. Like if you, you know, to your point about a pressure curve, I, I go back to a visual and, you know, at all the new, uh, you know, like little fast food restaurant openings, they have those big blow up dancing Gumby dolls out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like if you think about that as your barrel with the airflow going through the bottom, right? That's your pressure curve, right? You blow a lot and that thing stands straight up. You blow a little bit and it dances. I mean, you're, you're changing the pressure curve, which is just changing what the barrel is doing. Um, with your load development, the only difference is I'm changing what the barrel's doing with the weight on the end of the barrel. Yeah, and that's and I think that's uh, to I guess to kind of like tie all this together is um, understand guys that that 
the tuner is and different types of tuners are going to have different uh, weights, uh, the different levels of weights. So Aaron, if you could talk through, um, your tuners that you have and tell people where they can find them. Um, I've done a podcast with Eric. You, you know that I've done a podcast with Eric Cortina. Um, Eric makes a great product. His, his tuners obviously work because it's a weight and it moves, right? So, uh, it's going to work. Um, what would be uh, kind of talk people through your product and, and uh, maybe not necessarily a sales pitch, but like what the thought process is and why you have what you have. Yeah. So the thought process on mine was flexibility, right? I wanted to be able to run a different muzzle brake. If I want to try a new muzzle brake, I wanted to run that. If I want to run a suppressor, I wanted to be able to run that. Um, so I am all like, just my logic is I want something that's the most flexible as possible so that I don't get roped in or boxed into a certain situation, right? Because then, you know, we decide we've got to sell this product to buy another product or, or what have you. And so that's how mine came about is I wanted something that would work with any muscle brake, any suppressor. And so that's what I came up with. So the, the concept of mine is it slides over. Let's spin it on here. This is just a little barrel stub I had from sitting out here in the shop. But then you put your your muzzle brake on after it, right? So you could put on, and I get this question a lot, so I'm gonna use this as an example, 419 brake, right? So you then you put the 419 adapter on and put the 419 brake on, right? Or, you know, if you've got a direct thread suppressor, you just put that on. If you've got another muzzle brake, self-timing muzzle brake, you know, there's a there's an MPA self-timing muzzle brake, there's a Patriot Valley self-timing muzzle brake. Uh, or a suppressor, right? So like to your point, you know, sometimes you want to go out and run a can versus a brake, right? Or you may not want to run anything on a 22 and you just put a thread protector on there and it's secured on there. So again, the, the concept for me was flexibility. I wanted to be able to use something across a bunch of different platforms with any number of muzzle devices that I wanted. I, did, I didn't want to be boxed into a situation. I, you know, I might want to try a new muzzle brake. I might want to try a new can. I might want to try who knows what's going to come out in the future, right? Um, so that was the concept behind mine is just make it as flexible as possible, you know, thread it on, thread it off and you're done. So do you have different mod? Do, do you have different models or different? Yeah, weights? I do actually. Let me, uh, so sorry, step back there. So kind of made mine for a number of different reasons. So there's a, the competition contour, which really works well for, you know, those slightly heavier contour barrels, you know, a lot of what, like what the PRS guys are using. Uh, some of the, the PRS guys have gone like a 1.25, which is, we call it a straight taper, but it's a straight, it's just an inch and a quarter. Um, going back to the system as a whole, that's a heavier, stiffer barrel. It's going to need a little bit more weight. So I've got, you know, what we call a, an XL to accommodate those. And so those, you know, it's okay. different in size. Um, and then you've got guys that have hunting rifles, right? They're looking for a lightweight. They're looking for, you know, they don't want to add a ton of it. And, and to your point, cosmetics mean something to people, right? So putting, you know, putting a, a big XL on a thin contour barrel, it's, it's going to look funky, right? I mean, people, people just don't want that. Um, and so, you know, that would be kind of the normal, but if I were to put, I'll just set it on top and we're wasting time here, you know, an XL kind of sticks out, yeah. right? But, you know, guys that are running ELR, um, guys that are running 1.25 diameter barrels, the, the XL works. It works really well. There's a number of people using them in PRS, and actually these two are the most popular in PRS and um, competitive sports. And then I've got what I what I call the slimline, which is 
it's even slimmer yet. It's the same length overall. And really what I made this one for was, was kind of as a replacement of the Hunter that I had prior. Uh, the idea behind this is when you start to get into hunting rifles and some of the, like the off-the-shelf 22s that are only running like a, a .6 or, you know, 5.8 diameter barrel uh, or smaller, you know, maybe it's a little bit bigger. But again, it's it's basically cosmetics and the, and the weight's tailored to that barrel contour. I go back to like short, stiff 18-inch MTU. It's going to need some weight on the end of it. Um, so the idea behind the different sizes is not that one works better than the other. It's to accommodate the amount of weight that was needed in the cosmetic look that a shooter would want for the appropriately sized contour barrel. Right. And the way that you establish the size of the weight is just, just through, um, it was it just through experimentation or were you running equations and, and running and trying to figure it out that way? Or is it just heuristics? Yeah. A lot of experimentation. So I get this question every so often of, you know, what's the ideal weight? Like, and some people are like, well, the ideal weight is X prove it. Like, how do you, how do you come up with an ideal weight for a rifle? They're all different contour barrels. They're all different barrel lengths. It's, it's statics and dynamics, right? Like this is your mem, this is your member. And if you put a weight out here, right, depending on the length from here to here and your weight, you've got a moment, a downward moment. Well, that same weight back here doesn't have the same downward moment, right? I mean, it's, so there is no ideal weight. Uh, so it was find a weight that is enough to cause a change, to impact a change, to allow somebody to tune a barrel while still being cosmetically appropriate. So next question for you. Um, do you have experience with carbon fiber wrap barrels? Yes. Um, and I will tell you my experience with carbon fiber wrapped barrels is probably more so through people that use ATSs and give me feedback on them than personal experience. I've messed with some of them. Um, they are, so that's an interesting one. A lot of the carbon fiber barrels, people wanted to put tuners on. It's, it's an interesting dynamic because they want a slimmer barrel, but they want a stiffer barrel. So because it's a hunting rifle, right? They want to lose weight or it's a, it's an NRL competition rifle. The tuners work. Um, they, they've still worked on them. I haven't had anybody say, look, I can't tune this carbon fiber barrel. Uh, now again, I'll go back to if, you know, I don't know, there could be somebody out there with an 18 inch proof competition contour carbon fiber barrel, it's going to be pretty stiff. Uh, as much as I would love to say that I've got the money to go out and buy every barrel and, you know, test it. I don't, there's an infinite number of, of possibilities out there. Of so course. do you find, do you find that the reports that you get, um, a carbon fiber barrel is easier to tune or is it more difficult to tune or are shooters able to see nodes a lot more cleanly or is it more kind of muddy because of the stiffness of the barrel? Well, if so, I haven't really had anybody that came back and has like an 18 or a 20 inch carbon fiber barrel. The majority of people that have carbon fiber barrels are running 24s and 26s for either competitions or hunting rifles. And I've got a couple guys up in Alaska that have them for, you know, hunting rigs up there. Uh, I think one guy's actually using my, my little Hunter one, which is, you know, an older version and they haven't had anything, any, any negative feedback. They're like, yeah, works fine. Like no issues. But again, you know, I don't know of anybody that's got like an 18 inch carbon fiber barrel. It, the results could be completely different. Yeah. There's uh, proof does offer it's, um, they have their main line, the standard tent, the Sendero taper. Um, but then they have, uh, basically it's a, it's a truck axle. It's like a straight taper of carbon 
And um, uh, the guys up in Flathead County, the law enforcement team was running those at 18 inches. And they were literally like freaking truck axles. And they shot anything. They literally shot any factory ammo because they're stiff. And they were very easy. Um, ammunition was, it was easy to get those rifles to shoot a wide variety of, of different pressures um, and bullets because the barrel is so stiff. So the, this is, this is interesting um, because it, for me, it's really interesting because as much as I dislike spending time at the reloading bench, I really enjoy the process of, um, of getting, a, getting a rifle to shoot well based upon what I know now in the process that I follow, it's pretty simple to do. It's, um, you know, and it's like, you, once you see it work over and over and over again, you have this, you, 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 you come to expect and it's very easy. And then the addition of having a tuner just makes everything that much faster. And I think that it's really important. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode with you was to, um, kind of uh, debunk some of the dogmatic thought processes that have already been um, instilled. And a lot of people will comment and say, oh, remember the old Browning boss system? And I do. I remember that old Browning boss system on barrels. It was just a little, um, well, it first started off with rubber. If you remember those rubber little donuts, little, the donuts that would go up and down the barrel. Um, and those were, they worked for those pencil thin freaking ultralight hunting rifles. Um and then the boss system, of course, and it kind of fell from grace with the community for a while. Uh, and now the, now we're coming back to tuners. Uh, more people are shooting tuners. Um, a lot of guys like you were one of the first ones and then Eric, uh, came out with his, and then obviously there's a bunch of people that are, you know, doing their home built stuff in their home shops as well that have come out of the woodwork, um, because it's a market that's, that's, it's kind of ripe. It, it's a ripe market to be in right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll tell anybody, if you think you're going to make a living off of tuners, you're not going to, guys. I, <laughs> I hate to break it to you. You're, you're not. Like, this is a side gig. It helps me with PRS, like helps me pay for my PRS. Like, that, that's about it. Helps me with that and, Your and addiction. daycare. addiction. Like, yeah, my addiction, right? But I like the learning aspect of it. And, and I'll be completely honest. It's super cool going to the events and seeing, you know, some of the best shooters out there with, with my tuners on their guns. They trust it. They rely on it. Look, it, you know, I can't tell you how many of them, you know, they tell me, man, it's made my reloading process so much easier. I spend more time shooting than I do reloading now. Yep. Um, and so, like I said, a lot of people think that tuners is just about shrinking your groups. There's a lot of other things, you know, at the highest, if I just ran through like the value of a tuner, one flexibility, right? I mean, run a bunch of different ammo, get it to shoot. You need to grab a box of factory ammo, get it to shoot, right? Two, you're not spending time at a bench, you know, pick a powder charge that's safe. It gets you your speed you want. Pick a seating depth that you're comfortable with. Dial dial your groups with the tuner, right? Run that same ammo in multiple rifles so you're not hand-loading ammo across, like, multiple different loads of ammo across multiple different rifles. Put a tuner on it. Get it to shoot. Like, I'll, I'll tell you, like, since... I started using them and came up with them. Like I'm the laziest reloader in the world right now. I mean, you tell me anybody <laughs> that would go to an AG cut match with three different lots of ammo. That's but, awesome. I love it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's something that I would it, do. <laughs> and and the, the guys were laughing at me in the squad. They're like, you're not, you're not doing it. And, and at one point, I mean, I had them separated and I, at one, one of the stages, I literally just dumped them all in a box and just shook them dump up. Them all and, in one and they're box. like, it's awesome. They're like, you're, you're, you're shooting insane. so good. I'm like, I, I'm not worried. Like if I was yeah, worried, I'm, I wouldn't do it. 
I'm more focused on my site picture. I'm more focused on my site picture and my shop process than I am worried about anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And that confidence, like I said, you go somewhere and it doesn't shoot the same, the confidence of being able to dial it back in that, that means more than you guys can know. Right. I mean, I agree. You go into a match or an event and you're questioning it. Yeah. You're already screwed. You're done. Yeah. It's over with. And I just like to learn. Look, I, I tinker with a lot of things. You know, I, I, Phil Cash and MPA laughs at me. He's like, why are you doing that now? Like, cause I like to learn about it. Like I want to learn. I like to tinker. Um, and then, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I do. I just, I, I like to tinker. I'm going to leave people with this. You also have to identify, uh, you also have to kind of like look through the smoke screen, right? You got to look through the smoke screen and see like, are there, are there any underlying issues or are there underlying motivations? What is the motivation for, uh, like, I don't have any dog in a fight when it comes to tuners. I, I paid for my tuners, right? I mean, I'm going to actually buy a couple more from you because I want to put them on some hunting rifles. Um, and I don't have a dog in the fight. All I all I want to do is make sure that people get the best information out there and that we don't as a community succumb to dogmatic thought processes just because somebody wants to um, publish publish data that may not be consistent with good testing uh, procedures. Um, and there's definitely something to that. And so it's just important for everybody out there that's that are listening, you know, don't take things for face value. You it, just because it's printed in a book doesn't mean that it's real. There's a lot of things that are printed in books that we now look at 15 years down the road and say, "Yeah, that doesn't work anymore and we've actually proven that to be incorrect." And that's not anybody's fault. It's just the fact that we're trying to be pioneers in this space and as a result of that, we have to constantly push the boundaries and push the limits. And, and people you, people are fallible. People make mistakes. They, people are fallible. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah for sure. I, I make a lot of them. Yeah. And, and you know, I'll leave everybody with this. When I, I got my pilot's license back in college, just after I graduated college. And when I took my exam, the examiner handed me my license and he said something that I still listen to to this day. And I think it applies in a lot of different things. And that is, this is a license to learn. The day you think you know it all, stop flying. Right? Yep. And it, you know, there was a little bit more of that of like, look, don't ever follow somebody blindly because it'll get you killed, right? Like you have to make your own decisions. And and I think that applies to so many different aspects of life. Like if you just follow people blindly, I got bad news for you. If you follow somebody and believe of some believe somebody is all knowing or has the right answer answer because their post count is the highest, I've got bad news for you. Like it's <laughs> guys, be careful. Like it's fine to ask questions and, and at my job, right. You know, I, there's a lot of risk to what, what I do as a job, not my tuners, but my day job and all of the teams that I work with, we, I all say the same thing. Like it's okay not to know the answer. It's okay to ask questions. But when you ask, like, if you have a question, try and come up with your own solution or try and come up with your own way to get to a solution, right? Don't follow blindly, right? Try it. Listen. There's a lot of information that's out there. And I think today's age, you know, a lot of people just have the habit of, I'm just going to ask a question because people tell me, look, it's out there. Do some searches. Read a lot. Come to a conclusion. Then ask your question to see if, you know, you looked at it the right way or maybe there's something you don't know. But always try and educate yourself first. And like I said. Agreed, you, man. 
don't follow people blindly. Like don't just rely on one source for anything. Yeah, that's a that's really important for everybody out there because um, everybody you guys spend a lot of time, you guys spend a lot of money, uh, and it's important that um, that those resources are not being expended frivolously because you can't get it back. I mean, we can always make more money. That's fine, but you can't get your time back. So, um, well, Aaron, before we uh, before we take off, I think this is a great point to just go ahead and and, um, and say that uh, if there's more information, that we'll have a conversation after this and and. I'm sure that there's plenty more that we can talk about on the podcast. It was really good to, to, to have this conversation with you. If you could tell everybody where they can find you, where they can look at uh, your products, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and sign it off after that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so you can go to my website, which is kineticsecuritysolutions.com, or you can go to adaptivetuningsystem.com. They both redirect to the same place. That's my page. Uh, there's a number of other vendors out there that, that sell my product as well. Uh, if you ever have any questions, you can message me directly. You can email me at info at kineticsecuritysolutions.com. I've had a lot of people reach out to me on Messenger. Uh, you know, just I will say, hey, please bear with me. I do have a day job. I've got a two-year-old. Uh, this is not my full-time gig. I will get back to you as soon as I possibly can. Uh, I can't always be responsive same day, but I try to get back to everybody within 48 hours, you know, assuming it's not holidays and weekends. Uh, but look, reach out to me. I, I like helping I like hearing what people are dealing with. It makes me think through things differently as well. If you're at a PRS match, look at the roster. I mean, if my name's on it, come find me. I mean, you can't miss my hat. My name's on the back of a jersey. Um, I, I love talking with people and trying to help them through it. So, yeah, any questions? Awesome. Like I said, reach out. Awesome. Well, uh, Aaron, thanks for your time, man. Um, I very much appreciate it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to future conversations. And um, you guys heard it. Uh, go look Aaron up, uh, see what he's got to offer. And always remember, guys, make sure that we have open minds. Uh, our eyes got to be wide open. Our ears have to be receptive. And our minds have to follow that in order for us to grow and become better shooters. That's the whole part of this whole game. That's why we're on this journey. So, um, Aaron, thanks again man and um for all the rest of you guys out there you guys know the drill keep your faces on the gun no problem appreciate it thanks